Hello? Oh, wait, uh, no, I don't do an intro. No, what I do is this. I stole this joke from the Zapatistas. Um, why is the U.S. the only country that has not had a military coup? Why? There's no U.S. embassy here. <laughs> uh, that's true. <laughs> so you're listening to Raise em Left, a uh, parenting podcast with a leftist perspective and lens. <laughs> um, I'm Tom, and this is Philip. Uh, originally, this podcast was a parent and for and future parent, and now it is just two parents. Uh, and uh, I, you know, it, Philip, would you mind if we shared, like, uh, you know, of course, avoiding personal details uh, about our families to not dox ourselves, but uh, some basic uh, how many kids we have in age of our kids? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, yeah, you can go first. Yeah, I'm like in my thirties, like mid thirties. Uh, I have two sons. Uh, one's, uh, in, uh, kindergarten or first grade. And the other one is currently in fourth grade. Haha. That was a trap. I'm not telling you anything. This was just to get your information. No. <laughs> um, this is uh, actually, a, this is now an episode about, uh, info security. Yes. And, <laughs> uh, I just failed. Uh, yeah, no, I am, uh, I'm in my early thirties, uh, and I have a now nine week old son, um, uh, who is not in school cause he is nine weeks old. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's where we are at in our stages of parenting. I'm a stay at home, uh, father now, uh, that's a new, uh, thing in the podcast Our previous podcasts. I've been working and then now I have, uh, now officially quit my job and for the past couple of weeks have been at home as a stay at home parent. Um, and I had an emergency on a medical emergency on my end of the podcast that caused us to be absent for a while that I want to be the focal point and uh, thing that today's conversation comes from, um, which I guess means that first of all, I should briefly describe that emergency. And I want to say that I'm doing this in somewhat briefly uh, in the nature of that information security we just mentioned. I don't want to give too much information out there to folks. Um, but there is a few you know, important key elements to this that I do want to share with people um, in order to get into the what we're going to talk about today. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, my son had an uh, incident where he stopped breathing, went unresponsive, and started spitting up blood. Uh, we had to call 911. And, um, <laughs> well, a first... Uh, three police officers arrived, then quickly followed by like six more police officers, uh, and then an ambulance, and then more police officers uh, before the ambulance took him to the hospital. By the time the ambulance left for the hospital, and I was like putting on clothes, and I'm like, you know, this is a 2 a.m. medical emergency. I'm outside in a bathrobe and combat boots and nothing else, and uh, I've got like a dozen cops uh, just milling around my house with like one street, like blocked off partially. And, uh, just the whole neighborhood surrounded with cruisers with their lights going. Um, and this is the, the impact of this for folks is the thing I want to talk about shortly. Um, uh, but it was made everything so much worse. They were literally in the way, like cops were just like hanging out in front of our front door, uh, while we're trying to get 
our son and his mom and me in and out and, you know, getting all of the things ready for us to go to the hospital. Anyways, I eventually we made it to the hospital um, and we spent a week in the hospital. Uh, he had pneumonia. Um, he is better now. We are home, but it was a terrifying experience um, that traumatized us both. I think it traumatized uh, my wife more because she was with him when the incident happened. I was asleep, hence why I was mostly naked for all of this uh, as I was in bed. Um, but um, yeah, th this was, uh, yeah, it was a big experience for us. And that experience and that experience for other parents uh, and, and things that I've encountered from other parents is something I really want to talk about today. Um, one of the things I want to hit on early on in this episode is I want to talk about some mutual aid stuff and some things that Red Dirt Collective did for us. Uh, I, you know, Normally we try to do our, our plugs at the end, but I really want to shove this plug in the beginning um, because Red Dirt Collective came through. Like, you know, it, Red Dirt Collective is my formerly local uh, gra grassroots organizing uh, pan-leftist group that was in my community that Philip is uh, a part of, and I was a part of when I was in that community. Um, and that group pulled together, uh, despite me saying, no, I don't need anything. I just want to tell you guys what's happening, but I'm fine. We don't need anything. And that group pulled together a uh, substantial care package for us while we were in the hospital and a substantial sum of money to help us cover some medical bills afterwards uh, that we are immensely grateful for. And this is, you know, I can, I want to, things like this are something I like to talk about so that I convince other people that these are things that can exist in your community. This happened. This exists within red state, deep, deep red state, Oklahoma. It can exist in your community. Should exist in your community, and it, is, it causes so much positive impact um, for us. It you know, it, it was even just the psychological effect of just knowing we had the support of a group of people was so much. Um, the financial effect of that hasn't actually hit us yet because we haven't received that medical bill yet. But also the stress of worrying about what those, you know, what that's going to be is substantially lower. We have this sum of money sitting here that will cover it when it happens. Um, that we, you know, that's, you know, we're in, we're very privileged, financially privileged people, but that still matters because our medical, yeah, that's a whole other episode of the medical, um, <laughs> you know, Medicare for all is a necessity for America. Um, uh, but yeah, so thank you, Philip, and and thank you, RDC, for everything you all do. Uh, I encourage yeah, I encourage listeners to support RDC, RDC, and other organizations like it. Um, so now let's uh, the, the hospitalization itself uh, was, of course, like and and child hospitalization when you're a parent in the hospital and how it hits you. You know, and this is something that I didn't expect to be as intense for me as it was because um, I spent most of my life in and out of hospitals. My dad has severe medical issues. Uh, he's a multiple organ transplant recipient um, has just, you know, I've been on a, a lot of hospitals. They're almost nostalgic for me. Uh, I get a warm, fuzzy feeling when I go into a hospital cafeteria. Um, but Jesus, this hit different and was, you know, again, we're very privileged people. My wife is has a medical background, and um, we're able to understand medical terminology. I have a long history in, in hospitals, and I understand medical terminology. Um, 
you know, where you're financially privileged. Um, but it was, even with all of that, it's a lot to deal with. And for a lot of parents who don't aren't privileged in those ways, it is so much to deal with. And going through this and wanting to know what other parents, like, you know, I don't know, it was hard for anybody else learning just how hard it is for so many other people and so li how little support a lot of new parents feel because of a specific thing that happens in our medical industry is a big part of what I want to talk about. Um, and then at the end of this episode, let's loop back around and I want to talk about that 911 response because... Jesus, that could have been fucking better. A dozen uh, cops is absolutely insane, but you know we'll get to that. That's still wild to me. It's it's like the third time I've heard that now, and it's still um, just cannot get over how completely bonkers that is. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it was fucking insane. Um, so. Early into parenting, going to parenting classes that are supposed to prepare you for being a new parent, uh, prepare you for having a child, prepare you for delivery, prepare you for all of that. It is all focused extremely heavily on the positive outcome, on the, hey, don't worry, everything's going to be great, everything's going to happen wonderfully. We watched like six different videos of women delivering like natural childbirth in the hospital where everything went wonderfully, perfectly, there was no complications. Everything was geared and tailored to comfort you, to make you feel better, and to make you not be anxious or scared. And there is, there is value to that, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say we need to terrify people. But a echoed thing that I felt and that I've heard through a lot of other parenting like blogs and things on the internet and other parents that I've met in the hospital was how unprepared they felt the moment anything went wrong they never had us watch videos of c-sections happening uh, or emergency c-sections didn't they loosely told us what would happen if we had to go in for a c-section or an emergency c-section um, they don't tell you what would happen if other things go wrong in delivery they don't tell you what it's gonna what's gonna happen or how it is when you go into the hospital with a newborn with issues with problems they don't tell you what to look out for that what is problems and things you should be concerned about like early in the hospital one of the things we had was uh, leo's having respiratory distress that we didn't recognize as respiratory distress because to our ears and to like our parents ears um, he was cooing like a baby coos in their sleep, like every breath. And it was one of the nurses that this triggered for them. They were like, oh, no, this is bad. This is a really common thing. It's called grunting. And this is, you know, like something we need to keep an eye on. If it doesn't correct itself in 24 hours, then we may have some issues. And it didn't correct itself. Uh, we, we did end up uh, our first night in the hospital. We went into respiratory distress and had to go into the NICU. And... It's those little things like that. There, It's all of these things that you learn that you should be looking out for, that you don't learn that you should be looking out for until they happen. And then it's like, well, you know, we didn't want to tell you that because you might be concerned or be anxious or be scared as new parents. And it's what is way more scary than all of that is getting shocked with it, you know, having a jack, a jack in the box of when it happens. And I feel like uh, kind of the phrase I used in our, notes for this is a, a toxic hope of its uh, an absence of preparation, like just not preparing people. And this is something that I feel like I run into in organization spaces. And this is something I want to really bounce off of you 
um, as I want to see if this is something you've heard or felt echoes of in organizing spaces where in, in time, at times and in certain spaces, there's an element of trying to prepare everyone for the best case scenario, like, echoing the best case scenario over and over and over. Oh, no, don't worry. What's going to happen is just this. You know, um, if, uh, it, you know, it, in protest situations, it's like, well, now, you know, like, it, this is specifically something I feel like I encounter from um, uh, the peace people, the, like, street peace people who are just there to, like, make sure that everything is peaceful or whatever. Um, this thing of, like, don't worry. The police won't do any of these things because they're not allowed to. You're just going to go in. Things are going to go super swell. It's going to be wonderful. And afterwards, we're all going to catch some hot cocoa and chill in a coffee shop and, you know, clap our backs about how wonderful this evening went. And there's not, like, whenever things go wrong, whenever things escalate, whenever things, you know, and even outside of protests, just in other just everyday basic stuff, you run into this thing where when things don't go perfectly smoothly in organizing or in uh, just general group large projects, you, you know, people aren't prepared for when things go wrong because we're afraid to talk about how they might go wrong and what you should do if they do. And I don't know, this is just something I see flawed in a lot of spaces like that. Yeah, I... I definitely think that there's some degree of um, ill ill preparedness at times. I think, you know, I, I kind of see the the thing that you're talking about as like a sort of like a dialectical tension sort of thing. It's like on the one hand, there's like preparing for the bad things. On the other hand, there's like, uh, you know, not needing, you know, the the spending of resources and mental effort and time and whatnot and all that kind of thing. Uh, and to me, there's like a, you know, attention that, that there's always a balance point. For example, like, um, you know, we don't, it would be silly for us during a protest to pre do prep for what if, um, the U S military comes in and starts, you know, using stealth bombers to blow up all the protesters. <laughs> like that's not that it, it's not like impossible. It's not very likely. And the amount of effort you'd have to spend to be able to like even have anything and that could be effective in that scenario and to have like a coherent plan that would like transition into whatever was going to happen after that, like is just, um, you're going to spend just like hours and hours and hours imagining this like really horrible thing and like how you would react and all that kind of stuff that like, frankly is debatable and it's valued to begin with. Like you, as if you could imagine what that scenario would actually look like. Um, and so like, I see it as kind of a, like a tension thing of like, you're constantly in this pull between like how much bad do we prepare for? Like what's reasonable, what, is worth the amount of time it would take to spend on it. Uh, and what resources do we have? What kind of time do we have? What's our capacity look like? And just kind of trying to balance those things. But I definitely do see uh, or have seen, at least in some cases, like places where 
that balance is like kind of thrown off and people go to either like either extreme and you know like what you're talking about where it's like let's just not think about it we're just gonna show up it'll be fine don't worry about it like if you just you know that kind of thing uh or on the other end like people who you know sort of spiral themselves into like a paranoid like prepper type of space of like like we got to get bunkers we got to like you know have a bunch of like you know rations ready to like you know doing some like spending sometimes egregious amounts of resources and time and mental effort on something that never comes to fruition so that's kind of my impression of the whole thing no very much and i mean that's one of the reasons so next week's episode we're gonna uh, we're gonna talk about catastrophization catastrophizing i I keep trying to make that into ization i don't even know if that's a word my my mouth doesn't want to make it as a word um but catastrophizing and and kind of how and some of that because like that's something that i've found you know like with, with with this situation with you know going through having a kid in the hospital you want to balance this like okay i want to be prepared for bad news from the doctor when they walk in here i want to be prepared for bad night bad diagnoses and things that i'd never even heard about um the rarest of genetic issues the you know all of these bad outcomes i want to be prepared for that but i also don't want to catastrophize i don't want to break down before anything bad has even happened because i've decided this is the worst you know thing that it could possibly be and that is such a hard in a moment of trauma that's such a hard balance point to find i mean it's it's easy you know now when we're sitting in chairs and talking through a podcast in comfortable rooms and discussing stuff when we think about these things outside of the moment it's very easy to find but it's hard to find in the moment and uh and and it i i think one of the things i'm trying to get at in this episode is how much harder it is to find when there isn't any preparation and i feel like for and you're trying sorry i'm trying to i i got us way off topic uh with the tangent there and i'm trying to pull us back um as you know as new parents i don't feel like i feel like everybody everything and everybody is so focused on comforting us and um almost just rushing us through the new parent stage that the moment anything happens, I feel like every parent feels so unprepared. And I mean, and to a degree, like that is a thing that has to be because you can't prepare yourself for everything that can happen badly with a brand new human being that just arrived on this earth. But also it's like even just the fundamentals, like, you know, it was um, <laughs> when I arrived at the hospital, I uh, went up to the front and it's two in the morning, right? So I got to go up to the security desk to like get let up into the uh, pediatric unit and I go up to the desk and they're like what's the patient's name and I give my wife's name and uh, like, we don't have that person and they're like is that your child's name and I was like oh no it's not and then I had to give you know my son's name it just didn't like initially occur to me to give you know he's still just now registering in my brain as a legal human being like of course i know he's a physical there human being but the idea that it is his like you know he's a legal human being is a whole weird little thing to wrap your head around um repeatedly having to say like uh what patient are you here for and then giving his name was you know so many times in the hospital was just such a God damn it, I just wish I could have like went through that 
actualization of like meeting and knowing and understanding him as a human in an instance that was outside of an emergency room, right? Uh, or, or a pediatric unit or a hospital. Um, and it's the little emotional things like that, that, you know, we just don't, we both don't have a preparatory early way for helping parents with, and we don't have a very good during the moment, you know, like, like, you know, I, I feel like, you know, almost something that should be offered to parents in the pediatric unit is elements of, uh, therapy assistance and, you know, something, I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm now I'm tangenting really hard, but you know, this is the thing I wanted this episode to be about, about, uh, you know, just sharing kind of what that experience is and how stressful it is and, uh, how unprepared you are to meet it when you meet it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I feel you like it's not, um, you know, I don't have anything off the cuff that immediately jumps out of me as like an obvious change to make. Uh, I, I've never experienced uh, having to take a, a kid to the hospital. Um, so I wouldn't even know what would, uh, what, would really improve things. It would be largely just speculation on my part, but um, I do know that just, I have the sense that there's no, there's no real preparing for some things. Uh, there are, and by that, I mean, not that there's no preparatory, education that could be helpful. I think like thinking about like, how, how can we equip parents in a sort of, you know, obviously you're not going to, like you mentioned, there's too many things that could go wrong. You're not going to equip parents for every, you know, possibility, but, you know, finding some ways to educate parents and like a few, you know, big symptom type things to look out for, or, you know, so to get kids to the hospital earlier um, or, you know, just general like reminders about call 911, you know, uh, give this be these pieces of information um, and uh, stuff like that could be very, very helpful. Um, but I also just know that like, I don't think anything really prepares you to emotionally handle the reality of being in that position um is just um any any time i've ever been in an exceptional and tragic uh scenario um i just i just can't imagine e even in times where i've done so and been in a place where um i felt like i had you know prepared myself for something it's just the reality of it being real and being and doing it uh, in that moment is so much more just um, so much different and, and, you know, tangible than, than any prep, you know, I mean, honestly, it's very similar to uh, just generic parenting classes in general, you know, you can go to classes and read stuff until you're blue in the face about like how birth process works and doing it and going through it and all that kind of stuff. And, what what uh the female body person goes through and what their partner go through uh 
and it doesn't um it, it really doesn't uh compare to the um the reality of doing it like when i had went in for my when my had we had our first kid uh it was like you know constantly kind of like um i we we took classes like you did and and everything and you know, still it's like, oh, okay. Uh, uh, you know, sort of scrambling the whole time, trying to keep on top of things and desperately try to understand, like, like making sure you're getting everything you need to do, do done and that you're, um, doing everything that needs to be done. And, you know, second kid, it was kind of like, okay, I know how this goes. <laughs> um, you kind of go in you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We know we're doing this thing. Uh, not that it, you know, becomes easy, Certainly not, uh, but it, you know, you have that sort of confidence and assuredness that, um, that comes from, that comes only from prior experience. Yeah, I think that's valid. I think that's valid. And I mean, that's, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, I think that's, you know, that's definitely a, a, a huge element of this. And I, I think three things that I want to talk about of things that I really, uh, I intend to do in the future and, wish I had done more of in the past, I suppose. Um, and well, well, I should say two things and all along those lines. And then one systemic change, uh, a major systemic change that I think needs to come about for situations like this. Um, and then the first one, uh, talking, uh, you know, the I think there's immense value in discussing painful possibilities with honesty and hope. Um, and that is, in really all situations and all elements and just as a life general thing, I am not a proponent of the positivity always, always be positive, never talk about the bad possibilities that, you know, are rea realistic and very much can happen. I think those things have to be talked about in a healthy way that also, that is in a healthy, honest way that also comes with hope because there is, there's hope attached to everything um, and, and I think that's just immensely valuable. And I think that's, to me, one of the frustrating things that we were, we didn't experience enough of. Uh, there was a lot of kind of a toxic positivity of, no, don't worry, everything's going to be great. Don't worry, everything's going to be great. Don't worry, nothing could possibly go wrong. Don't worry, it's all going to be excellent. And that's not an accurate thing to tell anybody when they're going into a hospital uh, or, you know, really at any moment of their life. <laughs> now, yeah, I mean, um, I'll I'll say real quick that like this, the toxic positivity thing, uh, is a real problem broadly in, uh, well, in, in a lot of things, but in organizer spaces type, uh, as well, the, um, to give an example, like we had a, you know, um, in, in our area, we had a, a big thing up, uh, around like the George Floyd, uh, death and, you know, people doing protests and stuff in our, in our area, just like pretty much everywhere else in the country. Uh, and um, people have like this very, like, like are desperate to have this like very positive view of that thing because like we were all standing up and yelling about a very an, an unjust thing. And, um, but the thing is two years from that point, like what we got out of it at the end result is uh one thing passed money allocated that sort of disappeared into the ether was never like actually paid out to anything and kind of just like slowly trickled back into the general fund and a big surge of right-wing reactionary organization and no one wants to look at that and say that was a failure we screwed up 
we did we stood up and we did a bunch of protests and we got a bunch of attention and we didn't do jack shit with it and what we got was an organized right-wing counter movement um and this inability to feel the pain of failure on the left sometimes leads us to repeating mistakes over and over again because when i see how some people who refuse to recognize the the parts of that that were a failure um they often suggest ways of going about things that are looking to repeat the same mistakes as before. A hundred percent. Yes. Um, another one of the, an- another change that I'm uh, been talking with another parent about making, um, that is, uh, preparatory is that I'm going to take some IF, uh, I always get this acronym wrong. Individual first aid kit training, uh, IFAK, IFIAK, uh, individual first aid kit training. Um, I-F-A-K-T. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so indiv- individual first aid kits are um, a first aid kit on steroids. It's something that is very valuable for protest movements. Uh, it's something that like the, um, you know, uh, I think it's Oklahoma Street Medics. Uh, they do some like stuff with this. Um, you know, there, there's a, it's a, it's a trauma kit uh, that uh, includes, you know, things like tourniquets, uh uh, chest seals, stop, uh, you know, uh, stop bleed, um, you know, things that are a step above a typical first aid kit that allow you to deal with traumatic situations. Um, and that's something that is pretty common to talk about in the firearm community because specifically IFAKs are really good at treating gunshot wounds. Um, but, they're also useful for other, you know, hence why they're also used in protest stuff. And they're also useful for treating tear gas, uh, for chemical weapons exposure, useful for treating, um, uh, you know, uh, well, other gunshot wounds that come from rubber bullets and things of those varieties. Um, but also it's useful, I would argue, from a parenting perspective, because trauma and severe circumstances, again, happen as a parent. Like, um, you know, I have uh, family members, uh, kids who... Uh, in the past few years have had, you know, severe childhood injuries, trauma injuries that have happened due to, uh, well, explosives, um, you know, being part of this is rural background stuff. You know, when you live in rural <laughs> communities, you do real dumb shit cause you're bored in, in rural areas, but, uh, you know, stuff like that. I want to be more prepared for, you know, I'm also raising a son who is probably going to in many ways take after me and have some dangerous hobbies and activities, even though I'm going to, of course, try to curtail some of that. Uh, there's only so much you can do. And I want to have that preparation that and knowledge training and, and background. Uh, and I think that type of preparatory stuff makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of people who would say, well, why would you No, no, don't prepare for that. You're just going to scare yourself. I would argue, no, that's, if you never have to use it, wonderful. If you do have to use it, it's better to have it and be able to use it than it is to not. And uh, yeah, oh, IFAK sure. train, uh, IFA, IFAKs, get them and train in how to use them. Uh, and then this last thing I want to talk about, uh, we we talked about this earlier in the in the episode, the the the, the, the police response that happened when I called nine one one. The fact that a dozen police officers responded and. In, in, in before and essentially instead of in the beginning a paramedic like when i i initially called 911 and there was this really quick response like they came into my house um 
you know, real quick after I called and I just assumed it was paramedics in the house with me actually. And then I got really frustrated. They weren't doing anything. And then I like looked up and realized it was like three cops standing in my living room. Uh, they didn't know what to do. They were all aghast and frozen and whatever. Um, this whole time, none of the police officers who were there were helpful to anything. They all arrived with the idea of, and now don't get me wrong. I've like, I understand an element of this. I worked Taco Bell many years ago, I was working at a Taco Bell. There was somebody who had a seizure in line during like a lunch rush. Uh, and they went unresponsive on the ground. We had to call paramedics. And one of the important things that had to be done was creating like a perimeter around this person because everybody just like froze in bystander effect and didn't know what to do. They were all just frozen and panicked. And we needed to get them out of the way so the paramedics could get in and get them on a stretcher and get them out. But in this case, it was two o'clock in the morning in a residential neighborhood. There was no bystanders there for the police to create a perimeter so that they didn't interfere with the situation. Instead, they brought in the bystanders to be, the police brought themselves in, stood in the middle of the living room in front of the door, and became those frozen, panicked bystanders. Um, so that was part of the issue. It was just that this wasn't helpful. It didn't need to be a part of this response. Um, but also, this directly and massively impacts marginalized and criminalized folks because these police officers had full and total access now to my house without a warrant. Um, there are many times in my life where there would have been things like, you know, maybe weed out in the open. Um, and that, oh boy, would you be afraid to call 911 for a very severe instance where you absolutely need to call 911 if you knew that there was a high chance of the cops coming into your house and arresting you because you had called 911. Um, there has also been most times in my life, including this time, where there would pretty commonly be an open firearm, uh, in open display. Um, in this case, there wasn't, um, but that could have been a problem. <laughs> With a bunch of cops coming into my house, they, the first thing they see is a gun uh, that can escalate situations. Uh, I did have the problem where I do have two very barking, very uh, protective dogs that I I did immediately have a whole new anxiety while I'm being scared out of my fucking mind in the middle of all of this. This minute I realized that these were cops and not paramedics, my next thought was, shit, are they going to shoot my fucking dog? Because he's barking at them. And I know he's friendly. I know he won't harm anybody. But cops are a different person. Like, um, you know, nor what I mean by that is regular people would be like, oh, this dog isn't going to hurt me. Cops don't have that attitude to them. Everybody is out to get them. So, yeah. <laughs> the, my my end, is we're running out of time in this, I want to say my end, uh, the end of my rant here is that we desperately need non-response police programs. I'm not, sorry, not non-response, non-police <laughs> response programs. <laughs> we do need oh, that's response. very, very different. <laughs> non-response police. That's what we already have. Yeah. No, we need non-police response programs. We need uh, care people to arrive with situations like this. And now, and I'm not against there being some form of investigator that is a part of this. You know, I did just call 911 and say that my child is bleeding. It makes sense to send somebody to make sure this wasn't a domestic abuse situation. Um, that person doesn't need, like, a uniformed police officer with a gun and a bulletproof vest doesn't serve that function. They didn't serve that function. They didn't in any way investigate the situation to see if that was the situation that was going on. Uh, there are better caseworkers, better adept at figuring that out. Um, we need non-police response programs. 100%. And if you don't want 12 cops to show at your house, uh, then you should click the subscribe button. 
<laughs> yes. That's uh, the only way to stop it from happening is it to subscribe to the YouTube channel or uh, uh, subscribe to our Patreon uh, for any amount and yes. join our community. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us. Uh, look forward to some new episodes coming up weekly, I promise now. Have a wonderful evening, morning, afternoon, or whatever other time of day it is. Thank you.